is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. COVID may have caught public health officials by surprise when it broke out more than two years ago, but they've had time to learn lessons and prepare for future outbreaks of different diseases. Well, now monkeypox cases, they're growing to the point where the World Health Organization just declared it a global health emergency. So we'll go in-depth into whether public health is really ready for monkeypox. And a top Russian official now says the goal is to get rid of Ukraine's government. But is Russia capable of doing that? You know how it seems Christmas shopping season starts earlier every year. Same thing happening when it comes to fall, Halloween, your favorite pumpkin-flavored drink or food may be around, like, soon. Oh, no, don't tell me. 90 degrees pumpkin spice latte. Doesn't sound good? No. Yeah, so we'll talk about <laughs> no, that. No, it doesn't. The uh, new 6th Street Viaduct opened. Uh, police have shut it down a few times because of the takeovers. There was a guy getting a haircut in the middle of some of the lanes. Um, We'll look at why people can't behave on the bridge, why we can't have nice things. New polls suggest people might be losing face in the justice system. Is the Supreme Court to blame for that? And grandma era, it's a new hashtag. Younger women adopting the hobbies traditionally taken up by grandmas, like crocheting and knitting, and they're posting on TikTok. Why would anybody want to get a haircut on a bridge? For Instagram. You do it for the gram, Charles. Yeah, but, I mean, come on, really? Well, a car zooms around you in a circle. (laughs) All right, we'll get into that a little bit later, but now we start with monkeypox. Dr. Ann Ramoyne is a professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So uh, right after, as we mentioned in the beginning, when, when COVID first uh, showed its ugly head, uh, public health officials were sort of, you know, saying well, this one is catching us by surprise and it's a novel virus. And, you know, and it was understandable and we didn't have very good contact tracing. We didn't have a lot of good anything, really, for quite some time. Uh, Now we have monkeypox, and I'm hearing already some echoes of the same laments. Uh, We're not doing a good job on contact tracing. We're not taking it seriously enough. Uh, What about meds? So let's tackle all of those things and more. Uh, Are we prepared for this one? Well, you know, we have many of the the tools that we need to be able to uh, to to deal with this uh, with this global outbreak. The problem is is that we have a beleaguered public health system that has already been taxed and overburdened. Uh, we have burnout from public health uh, and and clinical uh, workers uh, everywhere. Um, we're having some trouble with the with the logistics of getting uh, vaccines, and we don't have enough vaccines uh, out there. Uh, so, you know, in in some ways, we we are more prepared because people are very well versed now in the language of public health and understanding the stakes here. But the problem is, we still haven't made the investments that are needed to be able to get in front of um, public health threats, in particular uh, viruses. Are we still at a place where we can talk about containing this and, and cutting it off of the past, or are we really burning daylight on that? Well, we're losing daylight every every day that we are, um, you know, that our response lags. I think that it's it's becoming more and more complicated to uh, to contain it completely. But it's not a, a just a yes or no answer. Uh, it's and it, it it will never be just yes we can no we can't we may be able to contain it in some places and not in others and we have to remember that an infection anywhere is potentially an infection everywhere as I always say 
And that means that while we may be able to contain it locally, we're going to still be subject to you know, uh, additional introductions because we're seeing increases in cases globally. For example, where I work in the Democratic Republic of Congo and other places in Africa, we're seeing increasing cases. We've been seeing this for decades. As you know, I've been working on monkeypox for a long time. And we have been seeing these increases in monkeypox cases in Africa. Uh, and there just hasn't been funding to be able to follow up on it, uh, to provide the countries with the needed uh, ability to do disease surveillance. The, the testing has been uh, limited. The, the ability to do contact tracing has been limited. So, um, But even so, we've been seeing increases in other places, and we can't ignore what we're seeing outside of the U.S. We have to be able to do something about it because with increased travel and trade, we are subject to what is happening everywhere in the world. Has the virus itself changed uh, because from the material that I've been reading in the past few weeks, the symptoms seem to be presenting somewhat differently in this country than uh, in Africa, where you've been doing, as you mentioned, a, a lot of work. And, and certainly uh, so far in this current wave, it's been about, what, 99 percent reported by men who report having sex with other men. But yet it's not as far as anyone knows, uh, there's no reason for it to be confined to any one particular sexual proclivity. Well, this virus spreads through close contact, uh, and it also spreads through contaminated objects. So, you know, it has multiple methods of transmission. And, uh, and so it's, it's not surprising to see it spread when it's introduced into a uh, into social and sexual networks, in particular those that are, are are large. But I don't think that that necessarily is because something has changed with the virus. It's just that the virus, with the change in the epidemi in the epidemiologic and ecologic landscapes, this virus is now it has a runway that it hasn't had previously. You know, there there are some changes that we're seeing. Uh, it, to the uh, to the virus, which is uh, something that would be anticipated when you see it start to spread, uh, to have more opportunities for spread than it would have had previously. But it's unclear uh, what those changes really mean at this point, and if it's really just a a, a function of it transmitting uh, over and over again uh, in you know from person to person, or or if it has any real impact on the virus. But nonetheless, it's just it's not surprising now that it has transmitting in these networks to see so much spread, uh, just given what we know about this virus and what it does. That said, you know, we have to be humble about what we know and what we don't know. This is spreading in a very different context. We need a lot of research, a lot of real understanding of what's happening now. Uh, and that will um, be critical to get going as soon as possible. Let's get to the sort of nuts and bolts of, of practically what can, what should people do here uh, if they think they've been exposed or if they know they've been exposed to monkeypox or if they even have monkeypox? And let's begin at the beginning. Would their doctor necessarily know what they have? Well, I think that this is uh, uh, important. The first thing, if somebody thinks that they have monkeypox or that they've been exposed to monkeypox, they should contact their uh, health care provider uh, as soon as possible to to get evaluated and then also to see if they have access to um, to vaccines. Uh, you know, I do think that there is some confusion uh, among clinicians who may not be keeping this virus at top of mind uh, when thinking about uh, um, uh, a rash or or uh, other symptoms. 
but I think that that's going to become more and and more uh, uh, common for people to to start su- suspecting monkeypox. So if you think you have it, if you think you've been exposed to it, uh, contact your health provider. Uh, the health providers can also contact the Department of Health. Uh, I believe that there's a, um, a number for health providers to call to get advice on how to, um, you know, to, to navigate testing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the health department has a lot of information up on their website uh, regarding this. And I think it's just important for, for everyone to, to remember that, uh, you know, this virus is, is definitely... Uh, spreading in particular in these high risk group settings, but uh, uh, you know, any, anyone can get this virus. Uh, It's just right now the highest risk groups are men who are having sex with men. Um, And uh, while it's in these communities right now, it certainly will spread further. Different localities do things differently. They always have, but did it complicate it in this case that it was so different with different health departments? I mean, for a while, like in San Francisco and New York and shots have been hard to come by, but you could go get one if you went in and said, hey, you know what? I, I did something risky and we're all adults here, but I think I need a vaccine. L.A. County was basically for at least a few weeks like you had to literally have monkeypox to get your shot. Well, I think that that uh, access to vaccines has been improving, and as the the stocks uh, uh, are are becoming available, so there should be more and more vaccine available. But I, I do know that it is difficult to get access to vaccine at this time. Again, I think the the key here is to communicate with your health provider uh, and to to um, you know look at the. The Department of Health website, local health information. There should be outreach and, and advocacy groups also uh, providing information as it becomes available. So let's let's talk a little bit about the vaccine or vaccines that might be available. Is it the same vaccine that used to be given uh, for smallpox? Is it related to it? Is there uh, any particular downside to it? How how benign of a vaccine is it? Well, there are, there are two vaccines that are currently uh, um, out there uh, that are uh, being that, that are being considered for use for 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 monkeypox. The first is the Genios vaccine. Uh, that vaccine actually has an indication specifically for smallpox, and uh, it is a two dose vaccine. Although I believe due to the um, the the shortage of vaccines right now, uh, I, I believe people are, are primarily focused on giving that first dose. Uh, and, and there's another vaccine, ACAM2000, which is a, a vaccine that's more, uh, it's more similar to the, to the old smallpox vaccine. It's a live vaccine uh, and it's a, it's a single dose, but I don't believe that that's being uh, used in any um, used locally uh, for for the the purpose of preventing monkeypox transmission, although it might be employed uh, in future. Doctor, we thank you, Doctor Anne Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology at uh, UCLA. Right now, though, we could see an escalation in the war in Ukraine. Russia's top diplomat says the current goal is to remove the government of President Zelensky. So does that mean Russia's planning another offensive on Kiev? This comes as Ukraine's working on an offensive of its own in the southern part of the country. Back with us is journalist Phil Itner in Kiev. Phil, thanks for being back. So what is Russia back to the original game plan, which is take the whole place instead of just, uh, you know, quote unquote, liberate the Donbass? 
Well, I mean, that is uh, the latest from Sergei Lavrov, who was, uh, he's the Russian foreign minister speaking in Cairo in front of the Arab League. He said that, um, that the Ukrainians deserve better, uh, basically uh, intimating that, the, yeah, that it is still their intention to have regime change in Kiev. Um, the, the Russians still maintain that they uh, see Nazi elements and uh, ultra-nationalists, fascists, what have you, uh, in the government in Ukraine. And so they are indicating that ultimately uh, they, would, they want to see regime change, which just kind of casts all their other excuses for their invasion aside, um, whether it's protecting Russians out in the Donbass or... Um, you know, again, this narrative of denazification, ultimately, they do want to see a new government in Kiev. Which I guess raises the question, Phil, you know, wanting and doing, of course, are two different things. Uh, they tried it initially, didn't work. But ultimately, could they succeed? I mean, if they control uh, a fair amount of the, the so-called industrial heartland of the country and if they can choke it off from, from easy access, uh, can they bring that about? Uh, a regime change? Uh, potentially, they could install a puppet regime. Now, if they were able to uh, attack the capital, uh, something they were unable to do in the initial stages of their invasion, um, but if their fortunes change, and it would be an extreme change in circumstances on the ground in Ukraine, but hypothetically, if they were able to actually get into the capital, replace the Zelensky government with a puppet government, um, which is highly uh, complicated because um, even the, the, the pro-Russian political parties here are now very much out of favor. But let's hypothetically say um, somehow they were able to actually do that. It, there is, it, it, it exposes a deep misunderstanding of the, um, the, the will of the Ukrainian people here, and the overwhelming will of the Ukrainian people is to oppose uh, a Russian-supported puppet government, any kind of pro-Moscow government in Kiev would be very unwelcome. And I suspect strongly that even if they were able to take the capital, that there would be an insurgency, there would be partisan guerrilla warfare. The Ukrainians have crossed the Rubicon when it comes to their relationship with Russia, and, and it is overwhelmingly anti-Russian here. I, I do not see how a functioning pro-Moscow government could be installed in Ukraine. Have uh, have they reached a deal when it comes to the grain and getting some of that out of the country? Well, it's incredibly difficult because while they did seem to come to a brokered agreement to open up a corridor to allow that grain out, within 24 hours, they attack the major port city of, of Odessa, where much of that grain would be sent to for the intention of putting it out onto the world market. So uh, the Ukrainians initially said that that scuttled the, the deal, but they've walked that back a bit and said, yes, the agreement was that they would open a corridor, not that they would um, consider an Odessa, uh, Odessa uh, out of bounds when it came to uh, attacks. Um, but regardless, the problem is if you're going to get the grain uh, shipments, harvest out, the open market, it will have to go through Odessa. And if the Russians continue to attack it, that will put the uh, the effectiveness of getting that grain to market in question. So um, it does not look, despite the uh, potential optimism uh, once that agreement was signed, that 
regardless of whether or not um, the Ukrainians kind of walk back their initial opposition uh, following that attack on Odessa, there is a <laughs> there is a logistical problem of how do you get grain out when the Russians are attacking your port city. Journalist Phil Idner, who is in Kiev. Phil, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So in the shopping world, there is Christmas creep. When the stores start marketing Christmas and holiday shopping earlier and earlier, and now it's like moved up to right after Halloween, you skip Thanksgiving altogether. You go straight to Christmas. And speaking of Halloween, now there's autumn creep. That's when companies start marketing everything pumpkin and Halloween. Pumpkin spice, pumpkin lattes. Nestle is putting its pumpkin spice cookie dough in a Halloween-themed cookie dough on store shelves next week. You heard that right, next week. Bert Flickinger, retail analyst, managing director of the Strategic Resource Group. Bert, really? I mean, uh, pumpkin lattes and Halloween-themed whatever next week? Really is right, uh, Charles and Mike. It's uh, it's a Halloween costume and masquerade to try to get late October sales uh, to in in offset just staggering uh, slow sales in July, August, September uh, through back to school, through Labor Day, through Columbus Day, and with these pumpkin initiatives from Starbucks to Nestle, consumers. While pumpkin is supposed to in, improve a uh, person's uh, mood and uh, it will not offset the sticker shock uh, from record uh, prices for pumpkin latte, uh, pumpkin spice cookies, et, et, et cetera. So it uh, lo- looks, looks like a Halloween double take in desperation. Okay, so they've been doing this earlier and earlier. Anyways, but this year it's extra early, you're saying, because the retailers are, are hurting so much and everything's so expensive. And so they're going to try and do this to get us to buy the stuff. But do you expect people to actually buy pumpkin spice things when it's August 1st? Uh, no, Mike and Charles, we're, we're in a record heat wave in Southern California and across North America and worldwide. And pumpkin sales are, as you know well, are typically associated with a colder uh, weather, fall weather uh, in the first uh, frost in mid to late October in big parts of Northern California and uh, big, big parts of North America. So uh, don't, don't expect it to work, uh, but just, just shows uh, the retail ice age is accelerating and uh, the train wreck from under the Christmas tree in 2022 is not going to be offset uh, by uh, the Peanuts characters uh, bring, it, bring in their pumpkins to the summer heat when it won't sell. Well, it just shows you, I think, the, the lack of creativity on the part of all these big corporations, right? I mean, they can't come up with maybe a new product that would excite the imagination of, of customers. They have to keep going back to, I get it that, it, that during certain parts of the year, these products are very successful, but they, they can't think of anything else. You're bringing up the incisive point that no other broadcast journalists worldwide have brought up in the 50th anniversary of Title IX. 80% of the decisions are made by women shoppers, and neither Starbucks nor Nestle nor any of the major corporations uh, sponsor uh, women's scholastic sports, teams, uh, collegiate sports, uh, pro sports to any level. The women get a penny on the dollar for every 99 cents uh, the men get it, with the exception of the enlightened leadership of Beth Ford at Land Lakes and Darla Nielsen at 
3M, uh, women's sports is starving for support, and that would catalyze a lot of positive goodwill and a positive sales. But uh, Mike and Charles, like you're saying, uh, there's no creativity because uh, the ad agencies and these corporations are controlled uh, by aging, balding uh, Caucasian men who don't connect <laughs> with women or people of color or kids. Does the Christmas thing work <laughs> when they do it? Like when they sell that right after Halloween to people, actually, because everyone complains every year. Oh, it's already on the shelves. But yeah. secretly, do they run out and like buy tinsel and wreaths and stuff on, on November 1st? No. And, that, and, and that's why Christmas tree shops, which is supposedly selling Christmas items year round, is really in a free fall for, for sales. And, and your point, uh, Black Friday in July, August, September, October isn't working, nor is Cyber Monday. And the, the retailers have reached a point of uh, desperation. And without the creative thinking uh, that you're recommending and you should be advising these retailers, there's no strategic solution to solve the problem because they're using the same page out of the playbook as previously is move, move up uh, calendar events and raise prices. And that's not going to do it for Starbucks, Nestle, uh, Walmart or anyone else. Well, Bert, here's my advice to them. Isn't it about time that we just start already on, on our Easter sales? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, especially since the Easter merchandise, to you. your fantastic point, is just coming off San Pedro Bay into the Port of Long Beach and, and the Port of Los Angeles several months late, so Easter's ready to hit the shelves now. Okay. Start painting eggs. Here we go. Uh, Bert Flickinger, retail analyst and managing director of the Strategic Resource Group. Who does doesn't want one of those little cute marshmallow chickens. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yes. Those peeps. Yeah. Year-round. The 6th Street Viaduct just reopened a little more than two weeks ago. It's L.A.'s newest landmark and an expensive one at that, costing nearly $600 million to build after the old bridge was torn down. And a couple weeks in, problems with the street takeovers, fireworks, vandalism, other rowdy, sometimes dangerous stuff going on. So bad that they've had to close it for three straight nights uh, this past weekend. The police... Jonathan Echevarria is the Historic Preservation Chair for the Boyle Heights Neighborhood Council. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. So we said this going into the break, uh, but we'll use it again here. Are we just not allowed to have nice things? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, I think this is a point of pride for the community, right? This, you know, this bridge is $588 million, largest bridge in the history of L.A. I'm, we even saw it in, you know, in uh, the movies, well, this the previous iteration, was built in 1932, and we saw it in Greece, Terminator 2, Drive. So, you know, not only is it uh, an L.A. symbol, it's kind of a national symbol. So I think a, a bridge like this opening in the viral the viral age is definitely going to have uh, incidents like this, definitely. Well, how much of this is being driven, maybe all of it, by, you know, the desire to get sort of short-lived fame on social media? Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think with people... Uh, kind of feeling uh, maybe even a, a bit cooped up still from COVID um, in this viral age. I see, uh, you know, there's a huge car culture and also looks like there's a lot of street takeovers happening. Uh, you know, they're on the rise in L.A. in general. So 
uh, you know, what more perfect way to flex than the takeover of the beautiful Sixth Street uh, Bridge? But, you know, unfortunately, incredibly, incredibly uh, dangerous. For yeah, involved. right, because that's the thing, right? It, it's one thing to go out at like 3 a.m. if there's nobody there and you want to get a picture of your car. OK, park it really fast and run outside. And, you know, every every car guy's guilty of this. Take a quick picture and get back in and drive away. But when you're doing yeah. donuts or you're filming or you crash and then three other cars hit you and it closes down the whole thing then we're obviously into the next category. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So how do we stop it? How do we stop it? That's a great question. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, whether that means having, a, you know, a, a police car parked out, you know, on the entrance, having cameras, I think that's what Kevin DeLeon stated, that we need to start having cameras, watching for illegal activity. Um, it looks like, you know, there's been people that have already suffered the, the consequences from their actions. You know, some people have been jailed cars impounded, uh, fees incurred. And I think these consequences, they're eventually going to deter uh, the rest of people uh, once the hype dies down a little bit. You know, it's still uh, very exciting for everybody involved. But, yeah, I I think eventually we'll be able to have a safe cruise on the bridge and and enjoy it. Well, to your point there, I mean, it almost seems like you saw this coming and plenty of of people did. Why didn't the police see this coming? I mean, you you open this brand new bridge, you know it's going to be a a social media star. I mean, they had like two days of celebrations and parties on the bridge to open the thing. So why not put a black and white there every night for a couple weeks until, you know, the initial wow factor uh, wears off and then maybe people uh, just like it, know it's there, but not everyone's trying to get their picture and, and get on Instagram right away. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, I can't speak for the LAPD. I don't really know what's going on. But, you know, they had to shut it down, like you said, uh, for three consecutive nights. So it seems like they definitely uh, learned their lesson. And it seems like there's going to be more protection for the bridge uh, soon, I hope. But what is it about bridges that people find attractive? Hmm. Maybe the arches, maybe the curves on this one. I don't know. The viaduct is it's a really nice bridge. I don't know. Um, it, you know, it's getting so much attention. It's it's. Uh, a huge, you know, the biggest in L.A. So, uh, I mean, it looks really nice. Yeah, I mean, it is it is gorgeous, the thing. But yeah. you would hope that people would be able to do normal bridge stuff on it, like take a bike ride or walk across it or something. That's what it's for, not this. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I, I uh, you know, I would never do it. You know, there were people skateboarding on it, people getting, uh, uh, saw someone getting a haircut right next to the traffic. So, yeah, no, that's. It's insane stuff, and I really hope it dies down just for people's, for people's safety. All right, Jonathan Echeverria is the Historic Preservation Chair for the Boyle Heights Neighborhood Council. Jonathan, thanks. That's when you, you know you've jumped the Instagram shark is the, uh, is the haircut. Yeah, and the a, guy had the whole, the whole chair, and then he had, like, the, the, the drape thing on, and it was you know, right there in the middle of the lines. And it wasn't even a really good haircut. Well, you, know, you got to zoom in. Yeah. Yeah. It'll show up on Instagram later. Probably does already there. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The recent Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, along with some others lately, has people rethinking their views on the high courts and the justice system in general. New AP poll finds two-thirds of people polled favor term limits of a mandatory retirement age for the justices. It also shows people are losing confidence in the court. More than 40% say... They have hardly any confidence in it. Now, that's up from 27% just three months ago. With us is constitutional scholar John True, who served in the George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush White Houses. John, thanks for being 
with us. You know, uh, we've long talked uh, about uh, in this country the loss of confidence that a lot of the public has in political institutions and Congress and the presidency. But we have gotten to the point, it seems, and these polls would, would seem to bear that out, where there's a lot of questioning now about the legitimacy of the, the court system. And more and more people are looking at, for example, the Supreme Court justices as basically political hacks decked out in robes. Where do we go with that? Well, I think uh, partially because of social media. You know, uh, President Obama criticized the Supreme Court in uh, 2010 for the Citizens United case, but he didn't really criticize the court itself, just the ruling. However, President Obama, uh, President Trump criticized justices and was right, rightly castigated for that. But President Biden has also been very aggressive about uh, criticizing the justices and the court as an institution. And I think when you have one co-equal branch uh, declaring that the other branch is illegitimate or, quote, should be burned down, as some, some of the people on Twitter have said, that really affects the legitimacy of it. With respect to mandatory retirement and term limits, well, if the people want it, they can amend the Constitution for it. If they can get a supermajority of Congress and three-quarters of the states to ratify it, then they can get it. Yeah, but good luck Good luck with that. Right? <laughs> well, everyone agrees well, on so I, many it, things it, these days. <laughs> yeah, that's a, pretty tough, that's a pretty tough thing to achieve, especially when so many people do believe that the, having judges have a lifetime appointment is a good way to, uh, to keep their independence. And the independent judiciary is really one of the crowns of our rule of law and our system of, of government. But now, but there's people now, uh, on that point, though, I mean, you can find plenty of people now in this polling seems to find these people who say that was the the general idea at the beginning, you know, give them life appointments so they wouldn't be affected by politics. But now it's like the life appointment is being used to just go and be political because people view these justices as blatantly political. So in their mind, that whole thing is backfired. Yes. And, and I, again, I think that's because of the increased and. In, uh, criticism of the justices as people uh, from other people in government and other commentators that we see on television and on Twitter. And then, of course, this, you know, we've had now protests in front of justices' homes, their private homes. We've never seen that before. And that's, uh, I think that's a very sad state and the civility of our, the way that we discuss things in this country. You know, when we talk, though, about lifetime appointments, you know, of course, if you go back to the 1700s, late 1700s, early 1800s, you know, most most people didn't live to be 80, 85, whatever. So if you were appointed to the Supreme Court for a lifetime uh, tenure, it, it probably didn't mean you were going to be there for like 40 years, which is now very, very possible. Well, that's that's true. But, you know, John Chief Justice John Marshall of Marbury versus Madison fame, he served for 34 years. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes served until he was 90. Uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American justice, he served until he was 90. And uh, other justices only served a couple of years before they uh, felt like they had to retire or, or even passed away. So the, the fact is that uh, while it's true that our lifespans, thankfully, have gotten longer and people, thankfully, have gotten healthier, over the, the centuries, uh, it, it's still, you never know with lifetime appointment. And I think, I think a lot of people are just upset that uh, President Trump got to pick Tony Kennedy's and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement. 
I think if it was a Democrat president that got to pick their replacements, you wouldn't see this level of animosity uh, on Twitter or in social media or anything like that. And I, I think that's that's not the right way to analyze things. Do we run into trouble, though, when there's already lists of justices that can be handed to a president or potential justices? You know, a conservative group has these names and uh, pick one of these. Or has that always happened and we just didn't really pay attention to it? Well, I think every administration, no matter what the party, it doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat or Whig or Federalist Party, you know, they've always had people uh, who've had potential justices and judges in mind. Uh, You have to remember when John Adams lost the presidential election to Thomas Jefferson in 1800, he crammed through uh, several judges. He created six new circuits. That was called the Midnight Judges Act back in 1800. So the the fact is that people have always had in mind who they would like to see on the bench. Uh, It's not anything new. And uh, I think it's important for people to understand that history uh, before declaring that the entire system is irrevocably broken, which it's not. Constitutional scholar John Shue. John, thanks. When you think of uh, knitting, sewing, crocheting, you probably envision, you know, a nice little old lady with glasses sitting in a rocking chair, cat curled up next to her. It's nice and it's quiet. It's grandma. It's grandma. Yeah. Making you a, a sweater. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it is. Yeah, because winter's on the way. Yeah. Uh, more and more young people, though, are looking to take on the grandma lifestyle, though. There is a TikTok hashtag, Grandma Era. It's getting more popular as young women take up crocheting, knitting, other crafts. And uh, with us is Brianna Sheridan, professional certified counselor, regional clinic director at Thrive Works in San Diego, into crafts herself, including crocheting. I mean, it is relaxing, right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> Very relaxing. And is that <laughs> the point? I mean, why do you think that this kind of started, if we trace it, there were a whole bunch of posts with like, the coastal grandma lifestyle and people were wearing sweaters and then doing their TikToks while sipping tea and being like, look how relaxed I am. And now they're actually taking like threads and making scarves. Um, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I am one of these people as well. Like I have <laughs> always uh, liked crafting, but definitely got more into it in recent years. Um, and I have friends, we have craft night now, Wednesday nights, definitely. <laughs> Um, and I, I mean, I'm 30, so I'm not like a young, young and, but I'm definitely not, I'd say grandma yet. Thank God. Um, but loving the crafts. And, um, I think, I mean, there's a lot of mental health benefits. Um, I found some articles from the American counseling association. There's something called crochet therapy. Um, and that's legit. Like it's an intervention and it lists like all these great, um, impacts from, you know, relieving depression, dealing with anxiety, building self-esteem. And the big one definitely is like, uh, you know, social aspects of it, connecting with others and how, on their Pinterest. <laughs> how much of this is uh, sort of the pandemic related? Because I've read some theories from from some folks that are suggesting that to some degree, this is because uh, especially young women who uh, for two years were not able to go out, you know, clubbing on a Friday night, maybe not even being able to share quality time with friends because of COVID. And so they've sort of, in a way, their their, their ability to socially uh, integrate themselves with other people has atrophied. Yeah, no, I think that's a big piece of it. Um, you know, we were all left with a lot of downtime of what do we do? We can't do our normal stuff. And one of them is definitely going out and socializing, clubbing, all those things that we do, um, a lot of people do in college, especially young women. Um, and I definitely think that's a piece of it. I mean, we're seeing a resurgence in a lot of 
like random things like roller skating's big now, you know, seventies are back. Um, and definitely, uh, the stress relieving benefits and, um, ways like that. It makes you feel good just to do a repetitive activity over and over again, I think really helps counter a lot of the effects of the pandemic. Um, and gives you something to do. I'm glad you said yes. you were 30 because I was going to ask you if some of these people are just hitting their 30s and slowing down. <laughs> you know, it's but, funny. But there's like I... teens doing this. <laughs> yes, teens. And I, I have friends that I crochet with and I'm the old, I'm the old lady of the group and they're in their like early 20s. So <laughs> it, it's a thing. <laughs> so so do, do, you, do you like, like if we were to come to your home, do you have like rooms stuffed with sweaters? Baskets of yarn. <laughs> yeah, just you have like sweaters you know, all over the place? <laughs> this is really timely interview. I went to Joanne's Sunday. I bought a crap ton of <laughs> yarn. I don't even know how I'm going to use it yet. I spent all last night like um, doing uh, cross stitch, which is a little different than crocheting. Um, I definitely actually bailed on plans Saturday night to go dancing and sat there and cross stitched for two hours and watched movies. <laughs> That's so when you know you're getting you a little older. Yeah. yeah. I want to stay in. <laughs> But, Even but, post, yeah. But, but you know, but you know, we, but we keep we keep talking, of course, about grandma era. Is there a, a grandpa era? I mean, what 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 are guys doing? Do you know? Are they taking up, you know, crocheting and knitting? Ooh, you know, I don't. I think it is a thing. It's actually becoming more acceptable. And I'm, I'm even Tom Dolly, I think it's his name, or Daly from the Olympics. I don't know if you guys know him, the diver. The oh, yeah, he would knit England. while he was waiting. Yeah, yeah, he freaking, like, crocheted a, or knitted. I'm not sure which. I think knitted a whole cardigan during, like, those matches. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he definitely made it more made it more mainstream or at least visible. Um, and I definitely think male and female, you know, we're all benefiting. All genders See, love Mike, crocheting. The, and the, Mike, knitting. this is something now we can Start, do during, during commercials. the commercials. During the commercials. Yeah. We could, we can yeah, keep ourselves amused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, why do you think social media likes it? I mean, why, why does TikTok like it? Is it because, you know, to some people it's it's like novel at first and then it turns into a trend after that? But like if I'm like some 18-year-old, I haven't thought of, of crocheting. But if I see somebody else doing it and they post about it and they're one of the first ones, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's a, like a way to show, kind of show off, you know, like what you're doing and um like some of these things are really cool and creative. So I think it inspires this idea of like, if they can do it, I can do it, <laughs> um, which isn't always true, unfortunately, but definitely um, I think a trend with like people on TikTok, like just showing off what they have. And it feels really good, you know, for self-esteem and many things to really um, present, right. And kind of show off something you created. Yeah, it's not something you bought. I was going to ask you, is, is there some, is such a thing as competitive Knitting, because I I remember like as a kid. <laughs> Is it no, for speed or no, quality? Well, no, I, mean, I I when I was growing up, my my kid, my my kid, my mother used to knit, and she with her friends, they would kind of, it was like an unofficial contest who could make could the make sweater the quicker or better <sighs> or with fewer buttons. I don't know, but is is there competitive knitting? I mean, I am not 100% sure. I'm sure there is somewhere. There's competitive almost everything these days. But I will say amongst my peers, like my, my my group I told you about, like I'm definitely competitive indirectly when I see them make really cool things. I start to go buy yarn. That's what happened Sunday. I was like, you know what? I can do that. <laughs> or like maybe I could do what they did. You know, so there is an um, not only official sport, competitive sport of knitting that I know of, but definitely I think that's, you know, TikTok social media <laughs> creates that competitiveness of like, well, I can do that or I, I want to try that. I'm yeah, go, or I can do that better. <laughs> we're gonna, Everyone's going to go make scarves now. That, this is it. 
All right, Brianna Sheridan, professional certified counselor, regional clinic director, ThriveWorks in San Diego. You know, uh, we could actually sort of knit mittens so that we can go out when we buy our pre-Halloween right. uh, pumpkin, mm-hmm. you know, lattes. We'll We're, dress the part. Yeah, we can. We can look like it's fall. <laughs> yes, it's, it's all about the aesthetic. Yeah. All right. Uh, more in depth tomorrow. 